You're listening to the Scotiabank Market Points Podcast. I'm your host, Greg White. Market Points is part of the Knowledge Capital series, a collection of audio, video, and written commentary from Scotiabank Global Banking and Markets leaders designed to provide you with timely insights and analysis. The global economy has slowly started to reopen. As the world attempts an apprehensive return to normal, if there is such a thing, how well positioned are Latin American countries for recovery? And what does a strong Latin America mean for Canada? On this episode of Market Points, Vice President and Deputy Chief Economist at Scotiabank, Brett House, discusses LATAM in a global context and explains why international relationships are more important than ever. Hi, Brett. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Good to be here. We're going to dive deeper into Latin America in a moment, but perhaps we can start with a bit of a lay of the land in the global economy. Businesses are just now starting to reopen. Are we ready for this? Well, in many respects, we still haven't received much data on the impact of the lockdown that most economies have experienced in an effort to control COVID-19. And so we're just beginning to see uh, what the impact has been from all of the measures uh, that have been put into place even before we begin consider reopening. If we look at the first quarter of 2020 in Canada, we already started seeing some significant softening with uh, a 10% uh, downturn in annualized terms or about a 1% year-on-year downturn. So we came into the lockdown with already pretty soft numbers in Canada. And both here and in the rest of the world, we're expecting to see Q2 register the worst quarterly numbers that we've seen in the post-World War II era. Uh, We are likely to see contractions that will set records in almost every major economy. And for the global economy as a whole, we're probably going to register in 2020 the worst contraction in economic activity that we've seen since the Great Depression in the 1930s. Is the comparison then to the Depression that a lot of people are uh, presenting a fair one? Well, in some ways, yes, in that, uh, as the International Monetary Fund dubbed it, we're going through the Great Lockdown now, which is in a way a bookend to the Great Depression in the 1930s. Uh, Certainly, the contraction in economic growth that we're seeing mirrors and is on a scale similar to what we experienced in the 1930s. But there's some really important differences. Uh, We're going through this not as a result of imbalances in our economies or policy mistakes, But because of what we call in economics an exogenous shock, that means something that's happened completely outside the economic system, not a fault or an asset bubble or some kind of disruption in markets inside the economic system. And what's also really distinct is that this is happening more quickly than we've ever experienced before. Whereas, you know, the stock market crash and ensuing depression played itself out over years. And if we look at past recessions over the last few decades, uh, you know, they've generally shown us slowdowns where uh, the weakening in economic activity takes a number of quarters, somewhere between four to eight quarters to really hit its bottom. In this case, almost all of the slowdown is being compressed into one quarter. So we're seeing an incredible degree of contraction in economic activity compressed into a very short period of time. So that's really different from past downturns. So it's a go big or go home kind of scenario. Um, how 
sustainable is this over time? So as things start to open up right now, let's say, and and let's say we get hit hard by a second wave that uh, many are expecting, and we realize perhaps we opened up too quickly, and then we have to sort of uh, jump back in the trenches. I mean, how long could we keep this up for? Well, in some ways, as long as we need to. One of the other lessons we've learned is that a central bank, if it's prepared to move in and buy up debt and finance government deficits that are being generated in order to support uh, both the business and household sectors, can continue to do so in a somewhat limitless fashion. Uh, The problem is that reopening is a great idea in theory, but doing it in practice is often a great deal more complicated. And so, you know, we can talk about returning to having open uh, hospitality industries, restaurants and cafes, uh, or opening school again. But in practical terms, maintaining physical distancing in those circumstances may not either be economic or feasible. On the economic side, you know, the finances of a restaurant with only half of its seats filled probably doesn't work. Uh, A Broadway show with only a third of the seats occupied probably isn't able to finance itself. In a similar way, schools might be able to reopen, but if you need to limit classrooms to only 10, 15 students in each case, we don't have enough teachers or classrooms to cover all of those kids. So, you know, in economic terms, you know, there is a distinction between you know, the theoretical possibility of reopening and then the real uh, practicalities of reopening. And I think we have to pay attention to both of those things as we forecast, you know, where our economies are going to go over the next four quarters as we attempt to restart economic activity and as we look at how the sequencing of that is likely to occur. Scotia's um, deeply entrenched across the Americas and specifically in the Pacific Alliance countries. And then, of course, you have a very interesting background, having also come from the IMF and worked at the World Bank um, and at the UN. Uh, What's your perspective on how LATAM specifically is uh, dealing with this when it comes to their own fiscal and monetary policies across the various countries? Well, you know, what's interesting is to see how Latin America isn't immune uh, to the tensions that are roiling uh, the rest of the emerging world. You know, it's been experiencing those capital pullbacks, just like Asia, the Middle East and Africa. Uh, But what is interesting is some of the ways in which Latin America is experiencing this crisis in a differentiated way from the rest of the world. If you look at you know, how bond spreads uh, or other asset prices have moved in the in the time of the crisis. You've seen some real differentiation between markets based on, you know, what we think are some big indicators of their financial and economic health. And, you know, four ways of kind of assessing how vulnerable a country is to uh, international or global financial crisis are the extent to which it has a large public debt burden, uh, the degree to which that public debt is foreign debt, either held by foreigners, denominated in foreign currency or issued under foreign law, Uh, the cost of borrowing for that country, what is the interest rate that it has to pay 
in order to convince investors to send money its way? And what kind of cushion does it have in terms of international reserves? And we often measure that in terms of the number of months of imports a country could cover with its FX reserves, uh, or the uh, the degree to which its FX reserves can cover its international debt payments and trade deficit as a whole. And here, uh, The Economist magazine recently uh, looked at a suite of 66 emerging and frontier markets on those four metrics, and Peru ended up being ranked fourth strongest on those four metrics out of all 66. And Brazil, Mexico, Chile, and Colombia all ranked in the top half of that cohort. And so you've seen that reflected in asset prices for uh, these countries. You know, Chile, I mentioned as well as Peru, you know, has seen a much shallower sell-off in its debt. Its currency has performed better uh, than many other emerging market currencies. And uh, in the case of Peru, we saw a really incredible situation a couple of weeks ago where it issued about $3 billion in sovereign debt at interest rates well below below 3%, which was a record for it. And that really reflects international investors' assessment of that uh, economic and financial strength. And so that differentiation in how markets are faring uh, across the emerging world, I think, is really interesting to see right now. Brett, can you comment on or highlight any of the specific um, policy moves that are happening in specific countries in, in Latin America that you're seeing are particularly strong? You know, what's really interesting is how immediate and effectively Latin American policymakers have learned the lessons that developed markets learned from our response to the 2008 crisis, that you know, you need to move quickly and immediately. And as I think I mentioned this time around, emerging markets have a lot more space to move because of the synchronization of the crisis where everyone's being hit at the same time. Lower policy interest rates and bigger fiscal spending in developed markets can be matched this time because uh, emerging markets have the space offered by industrial countries' moves to implement their own policy actions. So, looking specifically in LATAM, you know, we saw Peru and the authorities in Lima bring in a set of fiscal support measures to sustain, uh, you know, households and businesses in the country that is equal to about seven percent of GDP. This is really big and compares pretty favorably to the size of fiscal packages that we've seen across most uh, developed countries that have gone through shutdowns. Chile brought in about 5% of GDP in fiscal supports. Uh, Brazil's brought in over 3.5% of GDP. Uh, And Colombia has been a a little more um, cautious in bringing forward support, but we just saw uh, yesterday, its fiscal rule committee, which is charged with ensuring that policymakers there are focused on the medium and long horizon, uh, the fiscal rule committee there just authorized the government to go into deficit on the order of about six percent of GDP, uh, which is a really huge support to the economy. So, you're seeing fiscal policymakers move in a really um, immediate and concerted way. And that's matching the easing in financial conditions that's being provided by central banks in the region. So you saw Peru's central bank 
drop its major policy rate by 200 basis points by uh, a full two percentage points over the course of a month uh, to 0.25%, which is a record low. Uh, Similarly, Chile, almost immediately as the lockdowns began, uh, pushed its policy rate back down to 0.5%, where it was in the wake of the 2008-9 financial crisis. And in Mexico, we just saw a move by the Banco de Mexico, not only to cut interest rates, but to inject liquidity into the financial system through a suite of measures that are designed to ensure that lower policy rates trickle through and actually ensure that lending is cheaper and more abundant uh, to all the major sectors of the economy. So you're seeing in every country a coordinated set of measures between both government finance ministries and central banks to ensure that households and businesses survive the lockdown and that they're able to tap uh, credit in a, an affordable way and in an accessible way. What is it do you think um, Canadians need to be thinking about when thinking about Latin America? Why is Latin America important to Canadians in the Canadian economy? Well, you know, Canada is a trading nation, and we get about a third of our GDP from exports. And we're the only G7 country with free trade agreements with all six other countries in the G7. Um, We've got an open trading relationship that's been in place now for almost three decades with Mexico under NAFTA and the successor U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement. Um, We also already have bilateral free trade agreements with Chile, Colombia, Peru, and Mexico. And we're negotiating a free trade agreement with Mercosur, which is the customs union of South American countries on the east side of the continent. That includes uh, Brazil and Argentina. So these are countries that are real targets for us as we try to diversify diversify Canada's trade. Because right now, you know, we get about 50% or so of our imports from the United States. We send about 75% of our exports to the U.S. And the U.S. has been, over the last few years, a slightly less constant uh, leader in liberalizing trade globally. and so. It's been a long-standing for decades objective of Canadian policymakers to diversify our trade. And these countries in Latin America offer an ideal opportunity to do so, not just because we have those trade agreements in place, but because broadly over the last decade, uh, you know, they've registered higher growth rates uh, than Canada or the U.S. They have younger populations, which bespeaks a potential for even greater growth going forward. Um, They are um, not only growing faster than Canada, but you're seeing deepening and broadening middle classes that uh, is creating greater demand for Canadian goods and services. And they offer a real opportunity for Canada to lead in continuing to support a rules-based open international trading system when some other parts of the international community appear less committed to that. It seems like trade diversification opens up lots of opportunities, but of course, right now, I mean, you, we hear some individuals claiming that uh, COVID is spells the end of globalization. How do you feel about that? I think it's wrong. 
Uh, first off, because there's a narrow concern that that question reflects that, you know, during this pandemic, we've had trouble accessing personal protective equipment. And so there may be a narrow way in which, you know, we need to look in a critical way at ensuring we can produce and access things like N95 masks, hospital gowns, or other uh, future medical equipment or other strategic safety devices uh, locally in an unimpeded way. But a move to do that is not in any way inconsistent with pursuing even deeper and greater globalization going forward. Now, there's no doubt that even before the COVID-19 pandemic broke out, globalization was under attack in some ways. The United States, which has been at the center of the development of the post-war trading system and the leading proponent uh, for freer trade, has retreated over the last few years from that vanguard and you know, has launched a range of protectionist measures, tariffs, uh, called into question some of the relationships it has with some of its most important trading partners. But it's important to see that in context, which is a tiny exception to what is a much broader rule of the last 80 years or so of lowering tariffs, freer trade, and much more deeply integrated markets and production systems. Now, it's uh, true that if you measure globalization only by uh, the amount of goods trade that's going on in the world, that has retreated a little bit over the last few years. Uh, it's retreated, though, from a, a historic high, a high that it's taken in many ways almost a century to get back to. If you look at the world pre-World War I, most economic historians would point out that we had even greater globalization in the late 1800s and early 1900s. You know, some talk about how if you sat in London at the time, you could travel more freely uh, than you're able to do now. You could access goods from around the world and offer your services almost anywhere in the world at the time, uh, obviously with a bit of a delay because communications weren't as effective. But it actually has taken really until the early 2000s and the last decade or so to get back to that level of economic integration. Uh, so globalization, you know, can be undone. Uh, there's no question uh, that that means we have to be determined and concerted. And as a, a middle-sized power and economy like Canada, you know, it benefits us greatly to be part of an integrated global trading system. And so, you know, we need to remain uh, leaders in pursuing uh, continued rules-based and open trade and by joining with 10 other countries in the Trans-Pacific Partnership, joining recently in uh, agreement with a range of other trading nations to ensure supply chains remain open. I think Canada is doing that, and it is reflecting the fact that even though goods trade globally has slowed a bit, uh, globalization hasn't slowed in other terms. Uh, if you think about the digital economy and services more generally, uh, Globalization in, in those things is ever greater than it's ever been, and that certainly hasn't been slowed by COVID-19. If you look at value added in production chains, you know, ironically enough, so much ire from the White House has been focused on China, but the value added in Chinese goods that come into the United States that originated in the United States itself is actually incredibly large. 
So in general, what that reflects is that, you know, assembly is being done in a relatively low wage economy like China, but the goods that go into that assembly and the intellectual property, which is where the biggest returns are generated, are all coming, you know, from the US or, or other countries like it. You know, when you think about innovation, whether it's distributed teams across the world or teams that are made up of people from a variety of cultures and backgrounds, you know, the greatest innovation comes with being open to the world, not being closed. And so I think, you know, our relationship with Latin America, the Pacific Alliance, and the potential it holds is just one part of the overall potential uh, that globalization continues to offer Canada and Canadians. That was Brett House, Vice President and Deputy Chief Economist at Scotiabank. You can find more thought-leading content from Scotiabank on our website at gbm.scotiabank.com, and you can also follow us on Twitter at ScotiabankGBM, as well as our LinkedIn showcase page under Scotiabank Global Banking and Markets. Please refer to our legal disclosures on our website. Thanks for listening.